0: Our scripture passage today comes from the book of Jonah, chapter 4. Give your attention to the reading of God's holy and authoritative word. <clears throat> but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. and He was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful "'Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love "'and relenting from disaster. "'Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, "'for it is better for me to die than to live.' "'And the Lord said, "'Do you do well to be angry?' "'Jonah went out of the city, "'and he sat at the east of the city "'and made a booth for himself there. "'And he sat under it in the shade till "'till he should see what would become of the city.' And also much cattle. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to God's word, we need his help. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for these words. That they are living and active. That they are filled with your spirit, that they are a revelation of who you are to your people. Father, help us today to hear them, to be instructed by them, to be rebuked and reproved, to be encouraged, to be built up. Lord, that we might grow in our understanding and in our love for you. We need your spirit to help us. We pray that you would grant your spirit to us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we are in our last sermon on our series through the book of Jonah. It's relatively quick and relatively familiar, the story. Uh, Perhaps it has quite an odd ending today. The last words of a book of the Bible doesn't tend to be a, a note about how there's a lot of cattle in a town. But as we look at our passage today, I believe it has a lot of things that are very instructive to us. As we see the progression of Jonah in this narrative, the one who fleed the presence of the Lord, who was interrupted by God, thrown into the sea to save the lives of the sailors, resurrected up by the miraculous saving of a fish, who preached to an evil city, who saw hundreds of thousands of people turn and ask for the Lord to have mercy. He has an unexpected reaction. It doesn't really play out the way perhaps we would have thought on a number of levels. Perhaps one, we would have expected a repentant Jonah to have understood fully what God wanted to do and have rejoiced in it. The, the second chance as he was again receiving the call to go to Nineveh, and he obeyed this time, and he went, and he preached against them, and they responded. But we see Jonah becomes a bit infantile in his response. Jonah continues to be at odds with what God wants to do with Nineveh, with him, with the people of God back in Israel and Judah the irony continues on in the book of Jonah what we see highlighted for us are a couple of themes that we'll hit on today Uh, one is the offensive grace of God two is the selfishness, the self-righteousness of Jonah and three the contrast between plants and people. First, if we just look at our opening verse today, we read that it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. What is it that, ex- that caused Jonah to be exceedingly displeased? Well, if we look back, one verse. Remember, the people of Nineveh began to mourn their sin to put on sackcloth and sit in ashes. And when God saw what they did, verse 10 of chapter 3, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So when we read in verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, you can replace it with God's actions. You can replace it with God himself God displeased Jonah exceedingly the way God acted displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry now remember the prayer the edict that went out from the king of Nineveh was that well perhaps if we do these things perhaps if we call a fast and we put on the sackcloth the Lord will relent from his anger indeed he did And now Jonah is the one who has become angry. And it's in this chapter that we really get a fuller sense of why Jonah disobeyed initially. We see it in verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my own country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Why are you letting this happen? Don't you realize this is the whole reason I fled from your presence? But then the irony continues. Why? Why would you flee? Because I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. We could have used this passage here as our confession of faith. As our assurance of pardon. Jonah knows the character of God. He knows that he is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. Jonah just doesn't want those things for the Ninevites. Jonah knew that if he was to go to Nineveh to follow the call of God, perhaps they would taste and see that the Lord is good. That they would experience his grace and his mercy. That he would show them abounding, steadfast love and that God might relent from the disaster that he had planned against evil. Jonah is so upset that the Lord would show grace to these people in Nineveh that he says, it's better for me to be dead than for these people to get away with this. It is better for me to die than to see these evil men receive your blessing. Jonah was zealous for God's blessing, but only for him and for his people. Only for the people of God back in the promised land. He didn't want to see it extend out to people like the Ninevites, his enemies. He is offended by God's grace. Oftentimes, we have a right understanding of God, but it might be incomplete. Or we might want to lean into one character, you know, character trait over and against another. But God is not one who changes. He's not one who leans into one thing and into another, but is eternally existent, always the same, never changing. And there is this tension in which we see truths about who God is that are simultaneously coexisting in his nature. Jonah primarily wants to see God as judge against people like the Ninevites, against those wicked others over there. He wants to see God as righteous, God as upholding truth, God as vindicating ungodliness against his people. Indeed, those aren't wrong things. In fact, when we get into our sermon series in the Psalms, one of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 2, which highlights for us the kingship, the rule and reign of Christ, the mighty king who rules with a rod of iron and dashes to pieces his enemies. Now, Jonah doesn't want that same reality true for him and for the people of God at this time, because they were living very wicked lives. They were ruled by a wicked king. They were worshiping in idolatrous ways. And one of the ways in which God continues to judge his people throughout history is to raise up pagan nations to come and to judge them. And so perhaps in the back of Jonah's mind, he is thinking, if God shows grace and mercy to the assyrians perhaps they will come and judge us do that is what happens eventually the assyrians do come the people are taken captive jonah wants them to be judged for their evil for their wickedness but he does not want himself or the people of god to be judged And he refuses to see how the love of God, the steadfast love, the mercy and grace of God to be expanded beyond the people of Israel. Instead, he has this mindset of them getting off easy, that they don't deserve to be forgiven, they don't deserve God's grace. Instead, they deserve judgment and wrath. Jonah wants to cancel Nineveh, but instead he is afraid that he himself will be canceled. That the fact that God is showing mercy to these evil, pagan, non-believing Syrians is not good news for the people of God. It is not good news for him. The Lord, in a very inquisitive way, rebukes him and says, Verse 4 Do you do well to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Jonah would rather die than be the prophet of the Lord that brings compassion to enemies. So Jonah begins to throw a bit of a hissy fit, and he runs out of the city, sits down, makes himself a little bit of a tent out of some, you know, sticks and whatever else he can find out in the desert. And he sat in the shade to see what would happen to the city. Remember, 40 days, and the city would be overthrown. Jonah's going to wait out the 40 days. Maybe he's wrong. Maybe their reaction, maybe what he believes the Lord is going to do is not true and he can just sit there and perhaps, perhaps God will still destroy their city. So he sits and waits. Then we begin to see really the infantile nature of Jonah's emotional state, the things that he values, the way in which he reacts. Verse 6 says, The Lord appointed a plant, and he made it come over Jonah so that it might give shade over his head, comfort him in his discomfort. And Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now, I've never been one who's spent much time out in the desert, but I do imagine shade is a hot commodity, and one that would be very refreshing. And so Jonah... Sitting here in his anger, sitting here just gritting his teeth, waiting, hoping, praying that this city will be judged. Unwilling to go along with God's plan of mercy. Finds himself refreshed. And his circumstances appear to have been changed. God has shown him some grace. He has cared for him in this way and he becomes exceedingly glad. Notice the extreme nature of Jonah's emotional state. Verse 1, he was exceedingly displeased and angry. He asked that the Lord would put him to death just a few verses later. And now, because of a plant, because he has some shade, he is exceedingly glad The Lord was going to use this plant, use this circumstance to teach Jonah, to discipline him, to instruct him on who he truly is, how his steadfast love actually works. Verse 7 When the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plant, so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die. Instead, said, it would be better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Jonah is a miserable soul. Back and forth. Angry, glad. Unwilling to even want to live his life so dramatic, so much like a child throwing a tantrum. He's so angry because of this plant. He ought to be put to death. It's better to be dead than to not have the plant anymore. His state of emotion, his view of God is continually based on his circumstances and not... On God's true work and character. He is the wayward prophet, the one who has backslidden again, who has reacted to God's work, who denies the goodness of what God has chosen to do. The Lord says to him in verse 10 You pity the plant for which you did not labor. Nor did you make it grow, which it came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Jonah is so concerned about himself. He's so caught up in his idea of what God ought to be doing, protecting the people of God from other acts that God might show mercy and kindness to others. So caught up in his own comfort and in his own distress. There was a pastor who pastored in the inner city And he was asked once in an interview, why why do you do inner city ministry? He said, it's kind of a funny response, but one that is telling, one that's very relevant to our passage. He said, well, out in the rural country, there are a lot of plants and not many people. But here in the city, there are many people and not many plants. He wanted to be where the people were. He valued people. He knew that God valued people that were created in his image. That's not to say God doesn't care for all of creation, that there's not beauty out in the world, that when we look up at the stars, we aren't caught up in the magnificence of God's power and beauty. As one commentator said, our idea of beauty... It's pretty plain when you look at a calendar. Right? It's all these panoramic views of nature, you know, snow covered fields, beautiful mountains, sunrises, perhaps even a bird. But you never see the face of a person. A group of people on a bus. Jonah doesn't care about the people in Nineveh. He would rather see them die than to see them receive God's mercy. He cares a lot about a plant that lived for 24 hours. Jonah is offended by God's grace. That's one of the apologetic problems with Christianity. That good people don't get to go to heaven. And That wretched sinners can be forgiven even in the hour of their death and receive all of God's blessings. Because at the heart of that problem, the heart of the offensiveness of God's grace to Jonah... To us. To our culture. Is one of self-righteousness. The people of God deserve God's blessing. They're the ones who have received it in the past. God shouldn't go and give it to somebody else. We're the ones who deserve it. This is Jonah's mindset. If God's going to show mercy and kindness to somebody, it ought to be the people who live in his promised land, who have received his covenant, who... Perhaps wrongly now, but historically have worshipped him well. Jonah knew a lot about God. He confessed these great things about him, but he did not like how God acted. He didn't like the implications of God's grace being extended It filled him with anger, filled him with despair. It filled him with hopelessness. He didn't even want to live. It would be better for him to die than to see God be merciful to these types of people. Grace for me, but not for you. That would be the mantra of Jonah. Perhaps it is the mantra some of us often feel. As we look around. If you ever read the comments on a news story, you see that type of attitude. I can't believe that person would do that. I hope that somebody calls his work. And I hope he dies. There's no grace. There's no mercy. There's no steadfast love we think about this imagery of Jonah being so upset about a plant, and instead of being upset about people, rejoicing over God's mercy to people, I think it's a helpful category for us to land on. First, a comment for you on verse 11. Why does God include cattle? <laughs> is it because he is an animal lover? Perhaps. Perhaps. But three times in this passage, the city of Nineveh is called that great city. It is great in two ways, both in its size and in its influence. This great city, 120,000 persons. I said a bigger number a couple weeks ago. It's because the way in which I count cities doesn't include everybody in these types of numbers. And they're people who are helpless. They don't know their right hand from their left. This is how God is viewing these evil, sinful people who have done wretched things. They don't even know their right hand from their left. They're clueless. And all of their cattle, all of the resources, everything that they have, all of their wealth, all of their influence... Nineveh is a significant place. That's where the king is. They are without hope unless God intervenes. And yet Jonah is concerned about a plant. Makes me stop and think I hope it takes you take some time this week to stop and think about the things in our lives that we value so much. The things that we place above other people. The plants, right? The insignificant things that are there for a moment, that have no real significance, that aren't created in the image of God, that aren't Relationally tied to you and to other people and to God himself. Perhaps even in our own relationships, the things we want to hold on to, the unwillingness for us to show grace to those around us, our own sense of self-righteousness. The ways in which we look around at what God has done The way in which other people maybe are prospering that we don't think they should. The ways in which we, like Jonah, are mad and disapprove of what God has decided to do. This is the Jonah problem. It's the problem for all sinners, especially those who are already in the people of God. Jonah is zealous for the people of God. He is zealous for the covenant, but his zeal is so over-applied that it trumps God's actions. God is able to withstand our complaints, our anger. He is kind enough here to take an extra step and to teach Jonah this lesson by, you know, bringing about this plant. He's kind enough to share this story with us, his people. To correct us, to lead us with his rod and his staff, to comfort us as we confessed earlier. To help us understand his priorities, his love, his mercy. No matter how offensive it might be to our own Sensibilities. We might protest like Jonah did, but God is faithful to continue to bring us back to. Think about this whole story. God says five words to the people in Nineveh, and they stop everything and cry out for God's mercy. God instructs Jonah so kindly, so gently, so miraculously with the fish. And time and time again Jonah responds in hardening his heart and being angry. The hero in this story is the Ninevites. The hero in the story is the enemy. see, Jonah sat on a hill hoping for his enemies to be crushed, hoping for them to be judged. Indeed, if we hope for pure, perfect justice in our world, we all ought to be very scared. Because none of us will be able to stand. And yet, Jonah is one that points ahead to something greater. We talked about this last week. There's a sign that signifies something greater. Jonah being thrown off to his death and brought back up by a fish was a sign that pointed us to Christ who was crushed, died, buried, and resurrected. And as Jonah sat on the hill wishing evil to his enemies, the Lord himself sat on the hill looking over his city, that Jerusalem, and weeping with compassion. How often he had to come and gather his people hoping that they would receive his mercy, that they would respond in faith and repentance. Embodying for us this great statement from verse 2, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What Jonah got wrong is his place in the story. He felt that he deserved God's mercy, God's grace, God's slow to anger. But if you go even look back, go even look back to the Ten Commandments, it starts out, on the Lord your God who brought you out Who showed you mercy, who delivered you from slavery. God never chose his people because they were worthy or deserving. He didn't choose you or me because we are worthy or deserving. He doesn't give us grace and mercy because of how great we are. That's the fundamental problem with Jonah's perspective of God. Of course, you'd be mad. If you deserved something and somebody else got it instead. It's our own sense of justice. But the reality is none of us can stand before God. None of us deserve his grace and mercy. That's ultimately what this book is pointing us to. It's ultimately the lesson of Jonah. That we ought to respond like the Ninevites. That the people of God ought to see how Nineveh responded and do the same thing and not act like Jonah did. That when we hear God's word proclaimed to us, it causes us to stop. Not to get angry at God, but to get angry with ourselves. To cast off our self-righteousness, to put on mourning and repentance. To seek his mercy and his grace and his steadfast love. And when we see ourselves, like those Ninevites probably saw themselves recipients of his mercy. How would you not be those who would go forth and hope for that to be extended to everybody else? How can the evangelist Jonah feel so bad about the effectiveness of his ministry? It's because he hasn't experienced the grace true enough in his heart. He, like us, needs to be renewed, needs to be reminded of our own sinfulness, but ultimately of the grace we've received through Christ. Jonah points us ahead to him. Points us ahead to our true hope. May we lay aside our own self-righteousness. And instead embrace meekness and humility. May we not be tossed to and fro by our circumstances. Thinking how pitiful we are because right now I don't feel that great. Because the sun is beating down on me. Because those people got something I wanted. May we not value other things over people. May we see the heart of God for even the most wretched of sinners. The most... Diabolical enemy of the people of God. And may we rejoice that he has saved us. Who are equally his enemies. May we receive his grace knowing that it came at a great cost. Sending his own son to die. Wretched death. If we ever wanted to see God's grace embodied for us, it is there. A brutal death, a shameful display on an innocent man, the only one who deserved God's steadfast love. He doesn't just send a man named Jonah to proclaim five words to us, he sends his own son to proclaim forgiveness in his taking upon himself our punishment. May we look to Christ. May we revel in his glorious grace that has been bestowed on us and those who are far off, as many as the Lord God would call to himself. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, full of grace and mercy. Lord, help us to not just confess those things, but to rejoice in them. To see when you bestow grace on someone else, it causes us to worship you. To give thanks and praise. To be reminded of the grace and mercy we've received. And not, instead, cause us to be jealous or filled with anger and envy. Lord, we thank you that you have sent your servant, Jesus Christ, your own son, not to just remove disaster that impends us in 40 days, but our eternal destiny, Lord, that He has paid for it in His body and blood, and that we can be accepted, forgiven eternally, welcomed into the kingdom of God, clothed with His righteousness. Help us to find our confidence there. Help us to find our humility there. Help us to find our joy in him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.